Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. This week on the AAF Exchange, we are joined by AAF's president, Douglas holtz Aiken to discuss the continuing economic impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic. Doug, thank you for joining us for the second podcast on COVID-19 and our second remote recording. My pleasure. Happy to do it. So it's week three of the pandemic shutdown. How are you holding up? You know, I uh, break into tears uncontrollably on random occasions. Other than that, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> like me, you're also a sports fan. Have you watched any good reruns on sporting events? Uh, I watched a couple of Nationals reruns. Uh, and then last night, for reasons that defy explanation, my wife and I watched uh, Contagion. That that wasn't a good move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not the best time to watch those kind of movies. <laughs> Actually, over the weekend, watched the rerun of the Patriots-Falcons uh, game, uh, Super Bowl, which was kind of bittersweet because, you know, it reminded me of how good we had things. And now, of course, going forward, we won't we won't have Tom Brady anymore. So a little bit concerning there. And our um, podcast ratings in Atlanta just plummeted. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, okay, so I think it's time to start talking about some of the economics of this. Last week, we talked about some of the key provisions in the Washington's $2 trillion emergency response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the legislation known as the CARES Act um, has since been signed into law. So help is, you know, on the way. But now I guess the question is, when and how does this all work? That's a, a really important thing for everyone to understand, which is that by signing it into law, uh, everyone viewed that as a major victory, but actually no one's gotten any help yet. It now comes the hard part, which is turning that uh, legislation and the promise of $2.2 trillion into actual help to people on the ground. Um, there are a lot of things that have to happen and uh, have to happen quickly to be effective. And um, I, I think the jury's out as to whether we're going to be satisfied with, with the way they go. So probably the poster child for that is the $350 billion in loans to small businesses that the act enables. And this is the Paycheck Protection Program. The basic um, just of it is that if, if you're a small business under 500 employees, uh, you can go get a loan for to cover the cost of your payroll. And if you use that money for only payroll or utilities, rent, mortgage, core things like that, and you never lay anybody off, indeed you hire back anyone you had to quickly uh, lay off, then at the end of the loan, it's forgiven. And in that way, we have the chance to inject $350 billion into businesses and preserve them so that there's some economic infrastructure after, after the pandemic, and we'll continue for people to get paychecks, and that preserves their standard of living through the pandemic. So uh, on paper, this is a fantastic uh, plan. Now, how, how are we going to do that? Yeah. Well, first you ha have to uh, have a way to apply. Uh, where do you go to get your loan? Um, and the Treasury and the Small Business Administration put out some guidance on this uh, uh, yesterday, and it's actually remarkable. This is the clearest four-page application I've ever seen in my life out of the federal government. They did it quickly. And so you can go get the forms on the website and fill out your uh, your payroll, from do the calculations. You can take it um, uh, beginning on April 1st, which is the day we record this, to uh, an SBA qualified lender and start the loan process. So mm -hmm. we presumably are going to get this going, get it going pretty fast. Here are the concerns. Concern number one. Uh, all of this stuff is is uh, voluntary. 
And there's no particular way to check whether, in fact, people did comply with the, the keeping people on the payroll. So there's a, a good chance that, that we're going to look back a year from now and find some fraud and misuse of the money. And one hopes that doesn't get in the way of sort of moving quickly because there's a real need out there. Second and biggest concern. Last year, the Small Business Administration originated $28 billion in loans. Now they're being asked to originate $350 billion in loans. Wow. That's an enormous scaling up. And whether they literally have the troops to do this, I have no idea. And, I, and, and it doesn't happen fast. Some of these small businesses are going to give up the ghost, and the people are going to get laid off, and we're going to see more damage. So that, that's an, a, a pure execution issue. We've got to see how well we do. Yeah, so that kind of answers my next question, which was um, what goes into administrating these sort of, of programs and what considerations are government officials making right now? So is it is it the Treasury trying to set up like some sort of a new department for this to manage all of this? Or is it, you know, the Fed that has to do all of this? What What's going on? Uh, if you look across the battlefield against the, the virus, uh, we have different kinds of things. Um, probably the, the, quote, easiest on paper is we've, we've increased the benefits uh, in unemployment insurance. Uh, we've increased the, the, the kinds of people who are eligible to include the self-employed and gig workers, independent contractors. Um, benefits last longer, but it's still unemployment insurance, and we have UI offices in every state, and presumably that should be just fine, except that the scale of need is enormous. Right. And we're, he we're hearing stories of literally people calling in and being told they can make an appointment in 2040. That's not super helpful. Um, yeah, no. So, so in the CARES Act, they anticipated that, that this might be an issue, and they put in some money for additional administration. But it sounds like the need is, is enormous, and making sure that they just get the money out um, is going to be a big deal. So that that's a an old program that just has much bigger demands on it. The SBA is a, a new program with very big demands on it. Um, the Treasury with uh, $500 billion in loans to, to make and the, and the Fed with an, an open-ended commitment to provide liquidity to financial markets and setting up different ways for people to borrow from the Fed. Um, uh, they're rerunning the playbook from 2007, 2008, so they know how to do that. And I think they're probably the best positioned, but they're gonna have some new people showing up. They're gonna uh, lend directly to businesses, for example, which they've never done before. So. Everywhere you look, you have big problems being solved with new programs that are being created on the fly. So, you know, getting to the finish line is no harder than constructing a race car mid-race. Here we go. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to talk about, you know, the regulation side of this. You know, typically the government has to create regulations in response to new legislation. Um, how does the CARES Act regulation how will the CARES Act's regulations be different from the normal process? Uh, typically, the legislation would say, you know, the Treasury should um, uh, you do rulemaking as necessary to implement the law. You know, use your judgment. And those rules then go to a standard playbook, uh, the Administration Procedures Act. And that, so you get proposed regulation, 90-day public comment period, you know, uh, final regulation. And all of that takes a year sometimes, longer in, in, in the case of some very complicated, contentious ones. The CARES Act says the secretary shall, by one week from the enactment of this, do X. So the timelines are incredibly short, and they're written out in the law. You have to go fast to get some of these things set up, and you're not going to get any public comment as a result, and you are uh, going to be under tremendous pressure to, to meet all those deadlines. So uh, the Treasury, in particular, is, is running at top speed 24-7 uh, trying to get all this done. 
Okay. And now one of the most reported parts of the bill is the direct payments to individuals. Um, how long will these payments take to get into people's bank accounts? So uh, the Secretary of Treasury, uh, Steve Mnuchin, has said it will, the first payments will go out in three weeks. Uh, and they will be done electronically, direct deposit into accounts. And uh, in previous episodes uh, where we tried to do this, 2001, 2008, it took six to eight weeks to generate uh, those payments. So th that's an enormous improvement. Um, I'm, I'm honestly not sure where all that improvement comes from. It may simply be a much greater use of electronic filing so that you can just run that process in reverse and send the money back. Um, but but that, that sounds pretty fast. Mm -hmm. um, the, the real issue is going to be, what do you do for the folks who don't have a bank account, don't file a return? How do you find them? How do you get the money to them? And, um, you know, there, there's the usual um, inside DC battle over how that gets done. And, and there, there are parties interested in checks. There are parties interested in putting stuff on things that look like uh, your your bonus cards and, and uh, gift cards. And, you know, there are a lot of ways to have that happen. Hmm. Um, and now on the business side of things, what goes on into administering these sorts of loans? You know, we started talking about this. Um, what kind of time frame are we looking at? So um, well, let's let's think about the Fed first. Um, there's been a lot of publicity around the fact that the that under its uh, the laws governing the Fed's lending, uh, they cannot um, uh, give loans to, to firms that don't have an investment grade credit rating. So if, if you're not investment grade, you, you can't go to the Fed. You're going to have to go somewhere else. And so um, they're going to have to do some checks. They can't just, you know, see who comes in the door and give them the money. They're going to have to check on that. Um, meanwhile, uh, over at the Treasury, the CARES Act says that when we make a loan to a, a company, it has to be, quote, adequately secured. Well, I ask you, Kyle, what does that mean? Who knows, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's in the eyes of the Treasury. What constitutes sufficient collateral to make this a sensible bet on the part of uh, the taxpayer. In the midst of a crisis, my view of sensible collateral probably looks a little bit different than in good times when you could really run a close check on the company. So those are tough calls that are going to be made on the fly as they implement mm -hmm. these programs. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I can imagine that that gives them, you know, a broad, broad ability to, to interpret. I, I think they should lend to, get, to me uh, with my good name as the collateral. Why not? <laughs> So with, with the government shoving out uh, so much money so quickly, it seems that there, you know, as we talked about, there is a very high risk of waste and outright fraud. How much does this concern you? Um, and is there anything the government can do to mitigate wasting these dollars? It, it, it's not my top concern by any means. And, and I think, you know, in this moment, I think speed is of the essence. Um, again, the, the idea that you can get money into firms so that the firms themselves survive, they don't go bankrupt, and the employees continue to get paychecks and thus can survive the worst uh, of the peak of the pandemic, that's the number one policy objective. And if you don't get it in there in time, you have to get new businesses after the pandemic and you have to put people on unemployment and get them back into a job. Uh, all of that will make it much harder during the recovery than if we can somehow put everything on life support and get it through uh, uh, the pandemic. So what I do think of the trade-off between, gee, this money can be um, given to the and to, for the wrong purpose or the wrong person versus getting it out there fast, I say get it out there fast and acknowledge and accept that it's going to be less than 100% when you, when you look at the other side. It's also true that the goal is to get the money out there and you're getting the money out regardless. So hopefully it will 
uh, even if sent to the wrong purpose, wrong person, whatever, it will serve the ultimate goal of having enough cash to keep the economy running through the pandemic. Got it. And this isn't the first time the federal government has sent checks to people in response to, you know, the economic crisis, whether it be business or personal. Would you walk us through some of the past examples, how they worked and what we can learn from them? Yeah, I think um, if you go back to the turn of the century, 2000, we had a a dot-com bubble. So we had the the, the sort of big collapse in in stock prices, particularly uh, tech companies, and uh, it generated a relatively modest recession. Uh, that coincided with the uh, inaugural of, of George W. Bush, and he had campaigned on a tax cut. And and so when they went to try to pass his campaign promise, it coincided with slow economic growth. And what came out was a decision to change some of that tax cut into checks. And so they, they in 2001, we wrote checks, the idea being give people a, a, a check, they go to the store, you generate a little more uh, economic activity, and we'll, we'll grow a little bit faster. I'd say that was a mixed success at best. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of economic research into if you give you a check for a dollar, what fraction of it do you spend? And it, it started to look something like 30 to 40 cents, not anywhere near a dollar. So it didn't seem highly efficient. And there's always a fight about whether it went to the right people. Was it targeted effectively? Um, so that was an arousing success. 2008, at the other end of his presidency, uh, same kind of uh, operation was done to fight the the clearly um, looming Great Recession, again, I think a modest success at best. So uh, those are situations in which the economy's not damaged in the way that it is now. It's just slowing or has slowed in a way that that, that people are unhappy, and the checks didn't do much. I, I don't expect the checks to be a key part of uh, the history books of this uh, episode, because the biggest thing is to try to fight the damage, you know, sort of preserve the, the companies and their employees as opposed to generate more uh, business. So it's just not going to be possible to generate a lot of business in these circumstances. Hmm. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about the CARES Act going forward. Um, you know, we'll talk about the impact as we as we see it play out. Um, but for now, um, I'm hearing a lot of chatter on Twitter and even on, you know, the news media about a phase four already being discussed. Um, what do you foresee there? Um, I, I think there's a natural reflex of elected officials to say we have to do something. This is a crisis. Um, the crisis continues, and so there's this sense that I have to do more, right? Got to take care of it. But I, I'd urge a, a little bit of caution in thinking about that. Um, you know, the the idea some people have is phase three gets us through. And, and I think that's structured to sort of preserve things in a, a desirable way. So phase four must be, what do we do with the other side? And that frames it as we have the economy off because of the pandemic, and then we turn it back on. And I don't think this is a off and on. I think this is a very badly assaulted situation right now, but, but it doesn't turn back on and, and has zero threat from the pandemic. I think we see a threat for the remainder of 2020 for sure, maybe longer. And so um, I think we have to start thinking about this not as we'll be free and clear and let's just pump the economy back up. It should be how can we insulate economic activity against this kind of a of a, of a, a headwind, of a, a pandemic headwind from, from viruses. And if you think about that, it might mean, well, we set up workplaces differently. So there's social distancing automatically. 
that'd be a pretty expensive and different kind of thing than, than some of the things that are being suggested right now. So my feeling is the policymakers should wait, see how the CARES Act works out, and then take the appropriate next steps for uh, the economy as opposed to just let's right now envision what it's going to be and, and write a big check. If we have the wrong vision, we'll, we'll get that bad, badly wrong. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of specifics right now. It's just kind of, sort of like, you know, politicians talking about, oh, we should start thinking about phase four. We should start doing this in phase four. Well, at its worst, a lot of the discussion of phase four is just a, a list of everyone's personal favorite projects um, done in, done under the name of, quote, stimulus or something like that. Uh, at the best, it would be a good faith effort to make sure that there is a better growth potential for the economy at the other side of this. And what that looks like is hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've certainly seen a lot of you know, a lot of people talking about how this is just going to become um, an av- a vehicle for new pet projects. So I think that would be something to to watch out for. It is something to watch out for. We ha- you know, this is not a hypothetical. Under the Obama administration, they passed the Recovery Act. And the Recovery Act was a very big effort. Uh, but unfortunately, about a third of the Recovery Act had nothing to do with recovery and was really projects for someone's vision of, of domestic and economic policy had a third of it been devoted to recovery, it might have gone better. What can we expect going forward with everything happening with COVID-19? I I think what you'll see is, um, you know, a a continued national effort to face the virus and the the genuine um, losses that will occur going forward, loss of life, loss of uh, livelihood. um, And that's going to be hard for uh, the next six, eight weeks, whatever it turns out to be. Past that, you know, we'll start to have the, the ability to reestablish social connections, and that'll that'll seem great. We'll reestablish economic relations, and that'll be a good thing. But but as I said, I don't think we do that in an atmosphere that's free forever of threat of the, of the virus. We do that in one where we have to deal with the virus simultaneously with growing as an economy and, and uh, pursuing our livelihood. So uh, that I expect to be a, a a positive thing. Uh, it'll involve, you know, growth, but it won't involve uh, free and clear, rapid growth that the kind that we'd love. So I don't see a V-shaped recovery out there. I see something that's more more steady, sustained, and modest than that. Mm-hmm. So looking ahead in the short term, uh, we're recording on April first. Um, so this Friday will be um, job numbers. Um, how do you see that report impacting the conversation? Uh, will we learn more? Will we not really learn much? What? H- how is this going to play into it? You know, uh, unfortunately, I don't want to say those those uh, numbers are irrelevant, but they're not indicative of what's going on on the ground. Th- those will be the Department of Labor's estimate of employment in March, and that estimate will have been taken in, in the second week in March, which is really before the largest of the shutdowns and, and the, the large-scale activity on the public health front began. So that's not the world we live in anymore. It's a nice piece of economic history. My guess is it'll show some some modest job losses, but not dramatic ones. The, the more important indicator will come one day before that when we get the, the latest release on new claims for unemployment insurance. Uh, the last time we, we got the, that data, we saw 3.1 million new claims uh, for unemployment insurance in one week. That's five times larger than the largest number during the Great Recession. Uh, most people would expect this week's to be worse than that. So uh, th- this is the flood of people who are showing up at these UI offices and, and why it's so hard to get them all signed up with benefits flowing. Got it. Well, finally, one one last question. Um, news about the 
incredible global toll of the coronavirus is coming in so hard and fast. You know, it's very, it's impossible to take it all in. Um, what's the most useful or maybe helpful bit of information you've heard over the last few days? Well, I think the, the thing that's most useful is to look at other countries and see where they are in, in sort of the versus the peak in their pandemic, because, you know, each country will have to get to the other side of this. And, and my question is, how will the globe recover? So if you, you think just narrowly of a, a U.S. exporter, what are, what are the markets for those exports going to look like? Are they going to be behind the United States and still at the peak of the pandemic and thus unable to, to be interested in our exports? Or will they be you know, sort of having their economies growing again? Um, if everyone can get past and, and grow simultaneously, the recovery is much better globally than if we're um, dealing with the fact that maybe only the U.S. and China are past the, the worst of it and doing that on their own. Got it. Well, Doug, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this was a great discussion, and I look forward to continuing to talk about the uh, impact and response of, the, of all of this on the economy. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.